So our first speaker today, I'm so excited. I love you, Kenny, very much, is Kenny. Um, and can I just confirm that we have a timer? Thana, are you set with the time? Yes, I'm set. Yes, I'm okay. set. We're good. Kenny? All right, excellent. You good with a five minute warning, Kenny? Yes, exactly. And I'm on it. And all my, yeah, okay. All my speakers are gonna try to speak slowly enough for the interpreters to keep up. Today is chill day. All right, take it away. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kenny. I'm a compulsive overeater. Trish, thank you so much for asking me to speak. I'm a blabbermouth and overcaffeinated, so I'll try to go slowly. I grew up in Salinas in the Central Valley of California. It's a small farm town. And it, I hope it's obvious how uh, out of place I felt growing up with the uh, green John Deere tractors and four wheel drive trucks and then attending Irish Catholic school. So I felt very out of place. And then I, I knew I was gay from a very young age. And at Catholic school, I learned about God and uh, punishing God. And that was my first uh, relationship with a higher power when I was 12. During puberty, I watched all my friends around me dating, holding hands, being intimate with each other. And I would go home to be with food. That's, that's how I handled um, what would have been dating and, and everything else during the teen years. It was a lot with food. I used other substances, but I'll focus on the OA program. But from my own experience, uh, I've been clean and sober for 21 years. Food for me was the exact same type of addiction. I used it to numb my feelings, to get out of my body, to get out of myself. And it disconnected me from my higher power. I used it to cope um, for feeling so different, being gay and feeling so different from others. Food was love uh, in my family. My parents were very busy working and my mother's form of love was to feed me excessively, like as in making up for uh, not being around as much. So eat the whole plate. Now here, eat some more. So that was love growing up. And uh, I'm sure that's how she learned it. And she just wanted to make sure that uh, we were provided for. I also got exposed to all of the messages about gays going to hell. And of course, uh, I would try to numb that out with food as well. And my weight uh, ballooned up. I would steal diet pills from the store to try to lose weight. I, I just wanted to be thin. I, I don't know why, you know, being a boy, I, I still got that message that I had to be thin like the other boys around me who were so attractive that all the girls wanted. And when I came to college and I, I came out, you know, I saw the guys were very, very thin. And so I uh, would binge and then restrict, binge and restrict. And I started using substances that would suppress my appetite as well. And there were so many negative consequences that came with that. And when I finally moved to San Francisco, 
I felt, oh, I'm finally free. I can come out I'm here in the Bay Area, you know, being near the Castro. And back then I would go to all of the raves and all of the bars and the clubs. And again, it did not matter how many different body types were in there. I would just focus on the guys that were super thin and my disease would tell me I have to be thin like them in order to find love, in order to get everything that uh, I saw my friends around me get as a teenager. And then I saw all my thin gay friends get, I have to be thin in order to get love. And so I would use substances again in order to try to suppress my appetite to keep my weight down. And it just caused a lot of negative consequences. I finally got clean and sober in my twenties um, because of a lot of the consequences. And my life got much, much better because of 12 step. And I was able to find a higher power of my understanding. I do need to talk about AA because that was my introduction to recovery. And attending AA, my life just got so much better. And like many people in sobriety or some people in sobriety, um, after a while, you know, uh, it's whack-a-mole. Sometimes food would uh, become... Uh, a choice of comfort. So there was an up and down relationship with food as well. I met my first partner finally in sobriety and it was the best time of my life to have the fellowship grow up around me. Everything we did was with other 12-step uh, people. And then my partner and I separated. And a little after that in 2009, he died suddenly in the freeway. And I caught myself in the desserts, the bakery section of the local grocery store. And I started using it. I started using desserts the exact same way I was using drugs and alcohol and food as a child. And my weight ballooned up. And despite all the years of recovery I had, I kept telling myself, I'm just going to have one more piece of dessert and then I'm going to stop. And I was very into the Bay Area um, alternative spirituality communities. So I would do these kind of, pardon my term, woo-woo rituals that I'm going to magically force myself to stop binging. I'm going to just have this one last dessert and I'm going to stop and I will not have any more grief and I can stop. But none of it worked. And my weight ballooned up. I put on about 25 pounds. And it just, it uh, was like um, in our literature, I caught myself isolating with the curtains closed and with food, I would throw food into the trash. And there I am with years of sobriety. I'd been in therapy uh, since my twenties and I would dig the food out of the trash can and, and eat it. And after saying, I'm never gonna eat this again. Then I heard people talk about OA in my other programs. So I attended OA meetings and no matter what anyone said, I kept projecting diet or overlaying diet onto everything that I heard. That was my only point of reference. I had tried so many diets, all the diets ads, the weight would come off and then it would come back on. So no matter what anyone said, I projected um, diet. I did not know what abstinent meant and I kept binging and restricting, binging and restricting. And then finally in 2012, 
I asked someone to sponsor me in OA. So after two years in OA of thinking it was some kind of diet program that I could not do, I could not control the weight, I asked someone to sponsor me and we started working the steps. We went through the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous and I stopped binging and restricting. That's what worked when nothing else worked. Despite being in two other 12-step programs that do work for me, for those areas, I needed to work the 12 steps through the OA format. I needed to use the tools of the OA program. I needed to talk specifically about the disease of overeating, binging and restricting in OA meetings and with other fellows. All that willpower that never worked through working the program, I stopped binging and restricting and then the weight came off. That's what worked. I don't have anything else to add. It was by working the 12 steps. It was by using the tools of the program, just like with the other programs. Grief has been a big part of my recovery. I shut down a lot. My experience was that people did not want to hear grief. They wanted me to move on despite all my willpower, despite all my accomplishments in academics, in the workplace to, to achieve pretty much whatever I want. I could not use my willpower for um, abstinence and I could not use it to get over grief. So I've had to form a different kind of relationship with grief, which is instead of trying to force it away, when it comes to let myself be present with it and then find people that are safe for me to talk about grief with, who can hold that space and hear it, just like when we listen to a fifth step, to not judge it, to not try to force things away. <clears throat> so, uh, the death of my first, my ex-partner is what brought me in. And then through OA, I've been able to recover and be abstinent for the last nine years. And then um, just like it says in the big book that our dark past will be the greatest asset we have. I am now involved in end of life practices. I was just recently asked to join a board of directors for a chaplaincy. So because I am abstinent, I now help other people with, with the end of life. Five minutes. Thank you, with the end of life grieving process. To me, my, my recovery and that this horrible thing that brought me into OA has now been turned into something of service to other people thanks to this program. During the pandemic, uh, we've all experienced losses um, because of OA. Um, I did not eat over loss. There was some uh, natural weight gain um, because of not being as mobile. But on Instagram, I see all the muscle guys. They've all talked about putting some weight on during the pandemic as well. So I'm going to just keep doing what I did uh, when I worked the program with my sponsor, and which is to take it a day at a time and do all those same things. And there is part of me that, you know, wants, oh, the world is reopening. I want all this weight to come off. But that's like my old ideas, my disease thinking. I'm going to just keep doing the same things that I was taught when I was uh, going through the steps with my sponsor. So it's the day at a time. Um, I sponsor. And it's, it's been amazing to sponsor uh, during the pandemic. Uh, 
um, having those regular check-ins with my OA sponsee, in addition to going to meetings, in addition to checking in with my sponsor. I do regular 10 steps. Uh, we went through the 12 steps again a few years ago, so I've gone through them entirely twice with my OA sponsor, and now I've started going through them again, and so I'll be writing my fourth step and um, sharing my fifth step with my sponsor again in the near future. So it's, um, for me, it's mm -hmm. just doing all the same OA um, basic stuff, whether there's a pandemic, whether there's the death of the love of my life, or just whatever it is, it's the same program, the same tools. I think um, I'm going to just end it there because I know we started a little late. So maybe save a few minutes for other people. So I'm super grateful to the OA program that worked when nothing else worked for me. And so I'm very honored to be asked to speak here and I look forward to um, hearing other people. Thank you. Yay, Kenny, thank you so much. Hmm. Really appreciate you taking time to share with us today. Um, our next speaker is Liz. Uh, hold on, looking for Liz. Liz, you up? You ready? Wave to me. Oh, there you are. Great. Okay. So our next speaker is Liz. We're in for a treat. Um, take it away. Good morning, everyone. Let me do a quick change here. Liz, compulsive over here. Hi, everyone. Extra Glad gay. To see you all. <laughs> Want to make sure you can see everything. I backed up a little bit. Alan, would you please post the picture? I'm Liz, compulsive overeater, maintaining a 175-pound weight loss. I have in September, 10 years of abstinence in OA. Okay, Ellen, you can take down the picture. Hope you can all hear me okay. I'm grateful to be here. Trish, thanks so much for your moderation and advice um, with my share this morning. Whew, where to begin? At the beginning, I was uh, 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 born in New York, grew up in New Jersey. Now I'm living in San Diego, California. Um, my parents divorced when I was very young. I was about four years old and I remember crying outside their bedroom door because they were fighting. And it was a really difficult time for me. I think uh, that's probably when I started compulsively eating. Um, my, my family split up. There was no one around like that. I was... Uh, Jewish in a community where there weren't many people like me. There weren't any other divorced kids, kids of divorce. And I gained a lot of weight and I was the fat kid. So my brothers teased me, kids teased me. They were very cruel. I turned to food as a source of comfort and books. There was nothing else for me, nothing else that would soothe me. Nothing would fill the hole in my heart. I didn't learn uh, spirituality in religious training, although I was forced into religious training as a child. Um, I heard about the traditional God in the Old Testament, and he sure seemed like a not, not very nice guy. But uh, <laughs> food and sugar was my number one source of comfort. I would buy 
candy bars with money that I could scrimp together or steal. Stealing was a big part of my story. And uh, those would comfort me and my desk to get through all of this religious training. Uh, needless to say, when I was a kid and a volunteer in a group where I had to sell candy bars for a group, guess who sold the most candy? And it's not because, <laughs> as you can imagine, it's not because it went to someone else, it went to me. Um, I would look for hidden food in my pantry at home. And when I would find those sweet treats, eat them, I would feel a lot of shame and guilt about it. Uh, I thought they were hidden from me. What I found out later on is that they were hidden for my mother because she was also a compulsive overeater. Both my parents were. My father used cigarettes to control his eating and he was a dry drunk. And uh, my mom just was a compulsive eater like me. She brought me to Weight Watchers as a child. I was probably between the ages of eight and 10. I was the only child in the room and it didn't go well for me. Uh, I even believe that she took me and dropped me off and left me there alone at the meeting. Um, fast forward to, um, to early adolescence. I was given a book that talked about female sexuality and I was mesmerized by the chapter about lesbianism. Um, I felt a little uncomfortable, like I wasn't supposed to identify with it, but every time I would open that book, I would slowly turn the pages to that section until I got there because I couldn't accept this in myself. Um, I didn't know anyone who was gay. I didn't understand any of it. Um, but I knew in my heart that that's who I was. Um, and uh, I always had crushes on teachers and friends, um, but it wasn't something that I could actualize. Uh, so I'll tell you a quick story about uh, an example of my, my sugar addiction as a child. Um, I would go to my best friend's house for Christmas and eat all of the Christmas baked goods that they had made until it came to fruitcake, which I hated, and I would eat that anyway. I would clear out any food that I could get, and sugar was my number one choice. I would dress up for, I dressed up for Halloween and made a robot costume so that I could put a shoe box on the front of the costume so that I could fill that with candy. And when I got home, I took that shoe box and buried it in the snow in my backyard so that I could have access to that candy later. I don't know it, if it lasted very long, but I was hoarding it. Um, I would eat to the point of being sick, but I could never, um, practice bulimia, although I tried. I was a, I was a failed bulimic. Um, I was uh, sent to a doctor who gave me shots and said they were vitamins and diet pills. And I know it was speed because I know how I felt. I realized that later. Um, none of those solutions work. I participated in liquid fasts with crazy things and enemas, you know, some sort of solution. That was the extent of what I was willing to do. After that, I wasn't willing to go to the, such lengths and I pretty much stopped dieting at that point. I, I came to OA 20 years ago and used it as a dating club, got connected with someone and uh, learned how to have three buffets a day, 
three feasts a day and nothing in between. And I would eat to the point of being sick each time because I was afraid that I wouldn't make it to the next meal. Um, I got involved with someone else who was, was a also a compulsive overeater who um, rebelled against all food and was also raised in an environment with dieting and, and would not diet. And when we got together, I left the program and left any progress I had made behind. Of course, I didn't have a sponsor at that time and I wasn't doing any step work. Um, eight years later, um, our relationship ended. She was <laughs> cheating on me. And that's when I reached a bottom. My relationship ended. Thank you. Was that a, someone telling me I have five minutes? No, no, you get three minutes left until it's five minutes. So you get eight minutes left. Okay, I'll tell you. you when it's five left. Thank you, thank you. Uh, so my relationship ended after eight years with the woman I thought I'd spend the rest of my life with. I was around 300 pounds. I was $30,000 in debt. I lost my job, I was laid off and I was homeless. And that's when I reached my bottom. I luckily was able to move back in with my mother and I cried myself to sleep every night. And I felt a pain that I had never felt before. Um, finally, there was no food to cover any feelings that I had. And um, that was my first experience with a higher power, I think. I had a moment during the, those evenings where all of a sudden I felt that this was the beginning of a journey and that I would never give up. And that was not from me. It came from somewhere outside of me. And that's when I began on my journey of recovery. I didn't return to OA right away, but I started making very small changes in my life. And I, and I lost the weight over five years, 175 pounds, but I didn't find joy in my life because I was a, still a sick, unrecovered, knuckle-clenching compulsive eater living from meal to meal, bite to bite. And um, my current spouse um, was doing 12-step recovery meetings um, for her work. And I said, well, when you have to go to an OA meeting, I'll join you. And so I came to an OA meeting a little bit over 10 years ago with her, walked in the room and started hearing people sharing. And I cried and I realized that I was home and this is where I need to be. And I never left after that. I found a local LGBT and friends meeting that became my home group. And I'm grateful every day to Mary, the woman who fought for us to have that meeting because at the time it wasn't an automatic thing to have a meeting for us, for our people. And I'm grateful to her. Unfortunately, this disease took her as well but I will always support our community within recovery because we deserve a space. So that's where I found my first OA sponsors in that meeting. Believe it or not, I wouldn't share. I was very shy, very quiet, and, uh, but I was listening, I was listening, I was listening. I wanted to hear how other people did it. I would see people with happiness. Five minutes. Thank you, with happiness and joy in their heart. And I would hear the promises being read and I would say, 
oh my God, I, that doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible. I can't imagine. And I, I just, I had to stop worrying about if it was possible, just like I had to stop worrying about if there was a God. All I knew is that there were many people, things and places and the whole universe greater than me. And that's all I had to worry about. Or I, I had to let go of everything else because for me, I was very analytical and I wanted to analyze everything. And the best thing about the step work is that I don't have to understand it. All I have to do is do it. And so that's what I did. I started doing step work and my sponsor said to go to three meetings a week. And I started, I said, oh my God, I can't do that. And I started going to three meetings a week and I had to talk to people and do step work and, and connect and share at meetings and get tokens and participate. And things changed for me slowly, just like my food plan changed. Now I, I don't eat sugar. I don't have any desire for it. I don't eat crackers and chips that came later. I don't have any desire, desire for it. That is the promises in my life. It's part of it. Um, I'm so grateful to have a food plan that's comfortable. I couldn't have the same, same food plan today that I did starting out. My, my abstinence has to fit me like a loose glove. It has to be something I can do, not some diet that's restrictive, that's impossible, something that's comfortable for me. And if a food becomes too exciting, then I know I've got to switch gears and maybe think about letting it go. And that's how I work my food plan. Um, I continue to attend meetings. Now I sponsor a lot of people. When I talk about the promises, um, I face my fears today. I'm a terminal procrastinator and I have learned that I can pick something I'm afraid of. And if I focus on it and try to do it and not worry about the results, the fear goes away and I can get things done. Thanks to this program, I was able to open my own business, which people had prompted me to do for years. And I was afraid to do it. I was in fear and fear and fear and fear. And I finally just let go and said, okay, higher power, you know, succeed or fail. I'm just going to do the footwork and it doesn't matter what the results are. And I've just stuck with it. And it's been four years and I've never been happier. I get to play sports in a gay league with other people and have fun and act stupid and not be very skilled, but just enjoy the experience. And I came to OA to find joy in my life. And that is what I'm finding. I'm finding joy. I'm learning to accept life on life's terms, that things aren't always great. But if I allow myself to feel my feelings and move through them, anything is possible. And I am now one of those people in the room who spouts off the things that you always hear that you read in the big book or in the OA book one day at a time and all the thing, all the catchy words that I thought, oh my God, I'll never be saying those things. But I am a true believer. I sound like a cult member. I love OA. You know, this is the reason for my life today. This is the reason for me to be alive, to be in service of other to other people in OA. There's no other greater purpose for me. I often wondered, why am I here? What is my purpose? This is my purpose, to share my experience, strength, and hope with others, to show them that anything is possible. So I'll end it there. Thanks for letting me share. Oh, yay. Thank you, Liz. That was awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, strength, and hope today and your fabulous hat. Right?
because it's extra gay. Um, <laughs> nice. All right. Uh, next up, we have, you know, and I, I believe, Terrell, I'm saying your name wrong. Is that true? You're saying it right. And like, okay, next up is Terrell. <laughs> Terrell is also a treat, though I noticed you didn't dress up gay for us today. <laughs> Take it away. I don't know. <laughs> this is gay. I mean, this is, I mean, I'm old, so this is an old gay. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Perfect. <laughs> Representing. <laughs> Representing the old gays, right? Uh, hi, my name's Terrell. I'm a compulsive reader. Uh, Alan, do you have my picture? If, if so, you can show it. If you don't, uh, did you find it? Alan? Uh, I guess not. Okay. I'll go find it. Um, okay. Um, so let's see, um, to qualify, uh, my top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, give or take. And uh, Maribel, you, you just came on, I saw you and I, I talked fast, very fast. So I'll do my best. So if I, if you go like this, I know to slow down. Okay. Um, let's see. So um, my top weight is, is 325. So I'm a hundred pounder and I have um, 42 years of abstinence. So um, I have uh, came in a long time. Actually, my absence day is June 6th, 1979. Um, so uh, coming in gay was a little different than coming in gay now. Um, but let, let, let me kind of tell you, you know, my story. Um, so um, I mean, I was a fat kid, right? So I was bullied. Um, they would say, Terrell the Barrel. Don't go too near Niagara Falls, um, you know, uh, definitely bullied. Um, I was so out of touch with my body. I knew at a very early age that I wanted to write, you know, play cowboys. I was not interested in girls. And then I was just saying I had late puberty because, you know, even though I had armpit hair and chest hair, I hadn't gone through puberty yet because prepubescent boys fool around together. So all those things that you tell, but I knew, I knew. And um, I was Southern Baptist. Um, so I was, went to Southern Baptist Church for several years. Um, and so um, I went, so finally, I, I mean, and I hated myself. And I, I know that I used weight to protect myself because I felt like if, if I'm 300 pounds, it doesn't make any difference what my sexuality is because I removed myself from the marketplace. So straight gay didn't make any difference. The, um, so when I came to my first meeting in 1976, um, I'm sorry, 1973, when I became my first meeting in 1973, um, you know, the, you talked about the steps and I, I, I couldn't do the steps because you had to do a four step. And I couldn't tell another person like about my gay thoughts. I mean, I'm a 17 year old boy and I couldn't share that. That was just, that was my deep, dark secret that I hated myself over because gay men were guys that hung out at, you know, by uh, uh, elementary school, you know, in a trench coat and green slime hanging out of their mouth. And that was, that was what gay was to me. So I couldn't tell another person. So I couldn't do the fourth step. And I couldn't do God because, I mean, I, I, the Baptist God was all powerful, omnipotent. And so that means that here I am, this 300 pound fat kid, 
with these alcoholic parents who are drinking and fighting. And I got the gig. I understood what was going on. God was punishing me um, with, for all the horrible thoughts I had about same sex. It was, that was my punishment. And so I couldn't do the God thing and I couldn't do the steps, but I did take the food plan that was off at the time. Um, it was suggested gray sheet of paper, just like the steps are suggested. This was suggested, but it was much more, you know, like, and so I, I took the, I, I, uh, I worked the food plan and I lost about 150 pounds in about six months. Um, but I was a 17 year old boy working at a shipping loading dock during high school and college. And so I, I, you know, that, oh, that horrible thing that, that a single compulsive reader likes is if you consume less calories and burn more calories, you're going to lose weight. I mean, we just don't like that theory, but that's, that's the truth of nature, right? Um, that's how the human body works. And it sucks. It just sucks. Like, why can I eat as much as I want whenever I want and not gain a pound? Um, and so, so I, um, I lost the weight. But since I didn't work the steps and I didn't do anything, I went to a meeting a week for moral support, you know, but I it was, you know, I just couldn't. Um, and so I had to go back out and eat. I, I had to go eat because I didn't, I didn't, I didn't deal with those things that made me seek excess food to start with. So um, I went off to college and in college, um, I got involved with, with the uh, men's liberation. I went to Sonoma State, a very liberal arts college. It was when I was there, I don't know what it's like now, but it was very liberal. It, we called it Granola U. Um, and so it was in you know, the mid seventies. And so I was starting to come out. I was starting to face my, my sexuality. And this is such a classic compulsive thing to do. I went to everyone I knew and said, I, do you think I'm gay? What do you think? Do you think I'm gay? What do you think? Do you think I'm gay? What do you think? And what I was trying to do was get approval from everyone else that if it was okay with everyone else that I was gay, then I would come out of the closet, right? And that's a compulsory, that's not a gay thing. That's a compulsory reader, like upset, like, uh, what, like uh, being obsessed with what people think of me. During this time, I got this, I, I give up a nervous stomach where I couldn't really eat because I was so, you know, anxiety ridden about coming out. Um, even though it was a very smooth transition because I was coming through men's liberation, but um, I got this nervous stomach. And so one thing I learned the first time around um, in OA was it's not the hundredth fight that puts the weight on, it's the first. So I started fasting, uh, fasting, you know, the very healthy. I mean, I did this one week fast one time and, you know, after you do a week fast, you're supposed to slowly ease into it. I was eating steak by the end of the night, end of the first day, right? I mean, this, but so anyway, so I got down to 160 pounds and I maintained my weight, which is about 40 pounds less than I weigh now, maybe 160, 165 on what I call the donut diet, which I didn't eat anything all day long, except maybe a salad or something that was, that thing kicked the compulsion in. And then on the way home from the discotheque, I mean, it was, it was in the late seventies, early eighties. I would stop and get nine or 10 donuts on, uh, at the donut stand to deal with that rejection. I mean, I was in this very crowded discotheque and in the dark corner and afraid to move my little finger. Cause I knew that someone would walk up to me. Uh, some guy would walk up to me and go like, look at you fat boy. Look, what are you doing here? You're too fat and you're too ugly. Go home. And so 
what I do is I would go, I would go get my donuts. And there were several times I chose donuts over sex, right? I mean, some guy might be being interested in me and I picked up those emotions. So I would go get my donuts. And so my best binging was after I tricked out. Um, you know, after I had sex with some, some guy, then the next morning I would go binge because I had, had all these emotions and feelings I couldn't deal with. And so um, I maintained my weight at 160 pounds um, on my donut diet. And then what happened? is that um, I was being fitted for contact lenses by my eye doctor and um, he couldn't get the prescription right. And that was back in the day where you had to, he would get the prescription, send out for them, you come back two weeks later, you get your contact lenses. So for a period of several weeks, my, my prescription was fluctuating all over the board. So he asked me, he said, Terrell, is there a history of hypoglycemia or diabetes in your family? And I said, yes. He said, is, are, you, are you eating sugar? And you know, compulsory to what we do, we lie. Um, so I lied about how much sugar I was eating. I, I mean, I said a little, you know, a three pound box of seized candy is a lot of sugar, but nine or 10 donuts is not. And I never order a dozen donuts because if you order a dozen donuts, it makes you a compulsive overeater. So I never ordered that meaning. So um, he said, if I did not stop eating sugar, I'd be blind within a year. Um, I then went to Europe and with a guy I was dating, and some friends that I was, these guys, I was interested sexually. And I had no choice but to, to do with all these feelings. I started binging. And I put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And they, they went back to, came back to the United States. And I was then traveling in Europe by myself. And I was, I didn't know how to deal with all these emotions of fears. So I kept binging. And I put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And that, um, when I was binging, I remember saying out loud in my head, I can still see. And when things start to go gray, that's when I'll stop. And that's where my disease takes me. I'm willing to sacrifice my eyesight for one more bite of chocolate. So what happened? Um, I hit the last house on the block at 17. And I knew that that's where I had to go to. Because it's not like, oh, well, I'm going to go try Weight Watchers. I knew from age 17, I called myself a compulsive reader. I knew as a compulsive reader, I never let go of that moniker just because I was binging. I never said, oh, I'm no longer a compulsive reader. I just knew I was, and I was controlling it by not, by not eating during the day. And I maintained my weight. And so it was like, oh, if I can maintain my weight, then I'm good. Five but what minutes. happened when I came, thank you. When I came back from nights, when I came back from Europe, I had to make it, I had to go back to OA, but I couldn't go to OA because nothing but housewives, they didn't like gays. And I couldn't do that restrictive food plan. And so I went to my first meeting um, and this man got up and said he had, was a man spoke. So that thing about, I can't do it because I'm a male. And he said he was a moderate mealer. So I couldn't, went, there went the whole thing. My reason why I couldn't be in OA because of the gray sheet thing. And then I found out there's meetings every night of the week at the Gay Lesbian Community Service Center in LA. And that, blew my mind because like, oh my God, I, I, I can't go to OA because I'm gay. They won't like me there. Guess what? There's means of it. So I got to OA and I, I became an active member of Overson Anonymous. And, and uh, I live in West Hollywood and now part-time in Puerto Vallarta, but um, I live in West Hollywood. And so it was, the meetings reflect the community, right? So if like, so I'm in West Hollywood, so of course there's going to be gay meetings, right? It's, it's like, duh, but it's like, Anyway, um, so what, so, I mean, it was kind of strange. And it was that thing about God is like, I had, I, I went to my sponsor and said, Paul, if I accept there's God in my life, do I have to go straight? 
And Paul laughed and said, no, just said, except there's a power greater than himself. Chris Paul died as a woman. So I guess it was like, you know, he had a, he had a higher power that worked for him too. Um, I, after about a year of, of uh, I moved away from West Hollywood into Long Beach and I, and I wasn't, I couldn't get up to my meetings in West in, in Hollywood. It was like an hour drive. So I stopped going to meetings because I was saving it. So when I got to my gay meeting and I started dying on the inside. And uh, so I went to this one last meeting in Long Beach. And I said, I saw this woman who smiled at me and I recognized her. And I told her what was going on that I was having a hard time sharing these meetings. And she said some magic words because she saved me. She said me. She said, Carol, the people that after you talk about being gay or talk about gay stuff at a meeting, if they walk out saying faggot, you don't want to talk to them anyway. But the ones that come up to you afterwards and say you'd had a great share, those are the ones you want to talk to. And I've taken that to heart. And now I don't, I can just go anywhere and talk about being gay. I can go anywhere. And it's funny because this is the history of, I guess, of gay, of, of, of program, of how society has come along. Um, my, my sponsor used to go around the world speaking at conventions and forth. And she said, Terrell, I always give them your number to call you because you're such a great speaker. You're working on such a great program. I always, and I said, and she said, I understand why they're not calling you. And I says, Natalie, they don't ask gays to speak at meetings. They don't ask gays to speak at conventions. They don't ask gays to lead retreats. Well, needless to say, I've been to Alaska leading retreats. It wasn't a gay retreat. I've been all over the country doing retreats and leading conventions. So that's bullshit, right? So if I'm gonna use the gay thing as a reason not to be a member of Overs Anonymous, that's bullshit for me. That is not the truth. That is not our truth. Our truth is that if you go wherever you are, you have to talk about who you are. We share who we are. We're sick as our secret, even if we're being secretive to our meeting because we don't think that they're gonna trust us. The ones that say faggot as they, or lesbo or whatever as you walk out the meeting don't want to talk to them i went to i spoke at a meeting in pasadena texas which was the heart in like the early 80s it was home of the ku klux klan and the nazi party it was it was a conservative area and um and i spoke and i said you know if i make this god your higher power you can i spoke to the chair because that's a that's a that's a program line you can make anything you want to your heart this man stood up and says blasphemy and this woman's room says blasphemy. Then the speaker, the secretary got up and said, he apologized to the group for having me come share. He had heard that I had a lot of weight loss and that's why he invited me, which devastated me, right? Because I'm in an in a OA meeting and the secretary just apologized for my pitch. I went to the bathroom on my knees and cried. And these, thank God I brought some friends with me and they carried me through that period. But they cannot take, kick me out of Overs Anonymous. They cannot do anything that prevents me from being in OA. And nowadays, it's like I want to say, oh, you kids, you have it so easy in OA. Oh, my God, there's gays, this, gays, this, you know, well, gay plus plus and, you know, LGBTQ plus. Oh, whatever. You should have come in in the 70s, you know. But I mean, that, that would be belittling your story. And we all have our own stories. But for me, you know, I had to find my own, I had to find my truth about who I am. Just when I came out, I thought I had to become this Nellie Queen and I'm not a Nellie Queen. Time. 
I like time. I had to just like in no way, I had to become who I am and had to learn how to find my own higher power, to find my truth. And Obers Anonymous has allowed me to do that. Thanks for letting me share.